down women with diluted dreams are home for joy has been washed down the stream. I'm Robin Hawkins, and you're listening to Watered Down Women. Hoping to be free, found a new home in the cemetery. Have you ever become disillusioned about someone or something? I'm not talking about being disappointed or feeling blasé. I mean reaching the point where you're completely embittered or shattered by what has occurred. There are many things that can happen to cause a person to become angry and maybe even spiteful. Events such as losing out on a promotion or the person you're crushing on seems to be more interested in your best friend than you. Or you loan money to someone in good faith and they never pay it back. In cases like these, irritation might last for a while, and you may always feel some level of resentment about what happened, but not to the point where you cannot move past it, the point in which a fury starts to eat away at you and begins to consume you from within. Bitterness has evolved into an actual psychological concern. According to the Harley Therapy Counseling blog, the emotional reaction and mood of bitterness is referred to as embitterment and is an emotional state of feeling let down and unable to do anything about it. These individuals grow to see themselves as one of life's losers. Embitterment is like anger in that it involves a certain amount of outrage, but it differs because the bitter individual actually feels helpless in his or her ability to change the situation. A German professor and psychologist named Michael Linden proposed a disorder called PTED, or post-traumatic embitterment disorder. He even went as far as to propose the following criteria for making a proper diagnosis. Number one, a single exceptional life event triggers it. Number two, the negative psychological state of the sufferer developed because of the event. Number three, the emotions experienced are embitterment and feelings of injustice. And number four, the sufferer repeatedly remembers the event. Sadly, Dr. Lennon didn't propose his theory until 2003, which was much too late to offer any supportive services for Betty Dyer, who by the time she had reached her mid-thirties had suffered two exceptionally traumatic life events. Unfortunately for Betty, she didn't have the luxury of self-pity, nor did she have time to mentally process the impact of losing her second husband. Dean Dyer's death 
left her once again in the position of being a single mother. And once again, Betty would have to try to move forward in life in order to provide for her children. In regards to Betty's six kids, imagine what their lives were like, especially her older daughters, who had now lost the second man they knew as dad. Having grown up with a divorced mom myself, I can personally attest to the intentional and unintentional mistreatment that my sisters and I received, sometimes by people in our own family. I can recall very few classmates whose parents were divorced at that time, and I can also recall some of the birthday parties and sleepovers that we were not invited to because of the fears and unknowns about our home life. For the most part, the other kids at school were kind to us at school, yet they followed an unspoken rule to not include us in any of their extracurricular activities. 1964 was prior to the Brady Bunch version of a wholesome, blended family. In this fictional family, the awkward adjustments and inherent resentments of being a stepchild was addressed in the show's first season, and the TV mom, Carol Brady, compassionately tells one of the children that the only steps in their home were the ones leading up to its second floor. Oh, if only real life could have been so reassuring and affirming. As the 1960s were drawing to a close, Betty held the family together by working long and arduous hours at the beauty shop, and she relied heavily on her sisters and her own older daughters to help with the younger children and to help out with household responsibilities. At one point, Betty met and married her third husband, but soon realized that the third time was certainly not the charm, and the marriage was over almost before it began. Before that decade ended, Betty's older daughters grew into adults and began building their own lives, and the two younger children, whom she had with Dean, were now teenagers. Betty's life was hectic as she lived paycheck to paycheck and moved a few times. Yet she did her best to provide for and show love to all of her children. Her personal life was rather turbulent during this time as she began to frequent bars and even had a couple of run-ins with the law for DUI and disorderly conduct. After losing two husbands to unexpected deaths and another to divorce, it wouldn't be surprising for Betty to fall into a pattern of making poor choices and to develop issues with an inability to form long-lasting relationships. Sometimes the behaviors of women in her circumstance can be shocking, embarrassing, and destructive to friendships, and more importantly, to relationships with family members. 
But let's not be too quick to judge Betty without taking a deeper look into 1970s life for women as a whole. As some females dare to venture out into the workplace and pursue jobs in the male-dominated world, some advertising was aimed at females under the guise of empowering them, but actually it demeaned them. For example, Eastern Airlines launched an ad campaign titled Presenting the Losers, which pictured a group of women who failed to make the cut as stewardesses for the airline because, as the ad stated, Eastern isn't just looking for pretty faces. We look at her makeup, her complexion, her figure, her weight, her legs, her grooming, her nails, and her hair. But it didn't stop there. The promotion went on to say, we also listen to her voice and speech, and we judge her intelligence, her enthusiasm, and her stamina. In regards to personal care, advertising perpetuated the message that a woman must keep herself clean, neat, and attractive if she is to ever find a husband. And lastly, a marketing promotion for barbecue grills told women that they didn't have to spend Mother's Day in the kitchen because they can now go outside to cook. So in looking at the world that Betty faced each day and better understanding the societal pressures placed on women, we can appreciate the difficulty and uncertainty she felt in trusting the motives of prospective bows, and also in the level of self-doubt she might have felt in her ability to still attract a loving and suitable companion. But in time, she opened her heart and allowed a true gentleman to enter her life. When Betty met Plummer Underwood, her sister shared that this was an encouraging turning point in her life, and she began to see a return of the old Betty, the one who was capable of embracing hope and happiness. Betty stopped frequenting the local bars and stopped drinking altogether. She even cut down on her smoking and began to focus on positive changes and choices for her life. Betty's parents and siblings were thankful that after all the losses and heartaches she had suffered, she was finally getting back to being their fun and beloved Betty. As 1972 was coming to a close, the hustle and bustle of the holiday season was in full swing, and the family of Betty Dyer had planned for a huge Thanksgiving Day gathering at the home of her sister, Louise. Betty's parents and her sister, Mary, planned to join in the festivities, and Mary shared that it was one of the best family gatherings they had enjoyed in quite a long time. With everyone living in various parts of the county and having such busy schedules with their own families, it was rare that the entire Edmiston clan could get together all at one time. 
Food and laughter was enjoyed by all, and excitement filled the air as word spread, unbeknownst to Betty, that Plummer was talking about buying her a ring. The moments from that Thanksgiving day would grow to become treasured memories, because unbeknownst to everyone, it would be the last time that Hattie and Theodore Edmiston would gather with all of their children. Christmas Day quickly arrived, and true to his word, Plummer gave Betty a ring, although some teasingly questioned whether or not he'd follow it with the wedding proposal. That day truly brought meaning to the joy of the season, as Betty and her family celebrated the birth of Christ and eagerly anticipated a happy and new beginning to their lives. When Sunday, December 31st arrived, it was Betty's first day off since Christmas. She had much to do on that last day of 1972, so she got an early start to her chores as she was in the habit of doing. Not only did Betty have plans to prepare a big meal for that evening's dinner, but her daughter was invited to attend a wedding that afternoon, and Betty had promised to style her hair. So she left the house before dawn and headed to the local laundromat. While waiting for her clothes to dry, we can only wonder if Betty thought back to the New Year's Eve of 20 years earlier, when she and her first husband, her one true love, Harrison, celebrated what was to be their very last New Year's Eve together. As she folded the laundry, did she smile in remembrance of him, or did she wipe away a tear welled up in her eye? When she was finished, Betty gathered her baskets, carried them outside, and placed them in the back seat of her car. We'll never know what thoughts went through her mind as she laundered the clothes, nor will we know what fear bolted through her entire body as her attacker lunged toward her. All we do know is that she would neither prepare that evening's meal nor engage in small talk and laughter while styling her daughter's hair because Betty didn't make it home that day and she would neither be seen nor heard from ever again. Watered down women with diluted dreams are home for joy has been washed down the stream. Grab a shovel and join me each Monday as we dig a little deeper and uncover the tragedies of watered down women. Searching for love, no pain in this world, with no help from above.